Dr. Sandler and Ms. Colkin provided their perspectives as a medical oncologist and oncology nurse on the recent emergence of adjuvant systemic therapy of non-small cell lung cancer, but in between that stage-wise are patients with locally advanced disease, most of whom receive combined chemotherapy and radiation treatment. I met with Ms. Beth Eby to learn her perspective as an oncology nurse practitioner on this common clinical scenario. But to begin, she commented on an interesting psychosocial dynamic seen in lung cancer, namely the connection to smoking. In the non-smokers, especially in the women, they are definitely, why me? I don't understand. I didn't think. We definitely deal with a lot more of that. However, they become fighters, you know. It's interesting. It's almost like putting them in the category of the breast cancer patients who don't necessarily have a correlation to why they got it, why am I getting this? And it's interesting with the hair loss issue, I ponder this a lot because I think that women with lung cancer who haven't smoked don't want people to know they have lung cancer and therefore don't want to lose their hair with chemo because that will make patients ask them why they're getting chemotherapy. Wow. And I've seen that in a few of my patients and they've admitted those words to me. I don't want people to know I have lung cancer because they're going to think I smoked even though I never did. Wow. So it's a very interesting stigma that comes along with that. The smokers, there's a lot of guilt. I would say there's more guilt in the men because, especially those who are married, who feel like they're leaving a family behind and they feel like they've done this themselves, I would say that most of my patients do quit smoking because of the guilt, though I certainly have a handful that just, they can't. How do you support the patients who have this feeling of guilt? What do you say to them? How do you sort of help them get over it? You know, we really just try to redirect their thoughts because there's nothing you can do. My answer to them is, If you quit smoking now, you will tend to do better with the disease and the side effects and the way you manage the chemotherapy. So I would advocate for you to quit. But there's no turning back time. There's no going back. And there's no reason to look back at this point. It's all going forward and taking it each day at a time. So that's the way I try to redirect their thoughts on that. I guess there's also a considerable number of people presenting who are former smokers. They've gone through the whole thing of quitting, and then, whatever, 10, 20, 30 years later, they still get the lung cancer. What about those patients? What kind of emotional reactions do you see? Well, I would say about half of them say, I should have never quit. But I laugh along with them and say, no, you're better off for quitting. However, there's a lot of guilt there, too. But again, it's I would say they're about similar to the current smokers It depends on how long ago they quit, because we definitely have a population of patients that's been 20 years, and then they get a little bit into the the why me, as the non-smokers do. And we have a lot of patients who've maybe only quit in the past five years, and about half of them joke that they should have just continued to do it, and the other half feel the guilt. I wanted to ask you about chemoradiation therapy in the patients who are getting it for locally advanced disease. Can you talk about sort of how you prepare these people in terms of what to expect? So we talk a lot about esophagitis, of course. The chemotherapy will make that worse. I mean, it all depends on which regimen we use. And we use, I would say, we use the SWAG regimen about 75% of the time, maybe 50, 75% of the time. And then otherwise, we'll use Taxol Carbo weekly regimen. And it's a toss-up depending. And then we'll do sequential sometimes. We'll give them some induction cisplatin-based 
chemotherapy followed by definitive XRT. So it really depends on which regimen they're getting and how they're getting it. Because of course, in the SWOG regimen, you're essentially giving them full dose cisplatin. So you're going to have to go into a lot more of the chemotherapy side effects, whereas the taxol carbo regimen really tends to be a lot easier as far as side effects. So I don't spend as much time talking about the side effects of chemo as I do how the interaction of the two can cause esophagitis and things like that. What about pneumonitis? Pneumonitis is more common, definitely, in my experience with the SWOG regimen. We talk a little bit about it at the beginning, but we remind them towards the end of their chemotherapy and radiation to look out for it. Because we don't normally see it until they've been done for about two to four weeks. So I normally, I see the patients, anyone that's getting chemotherapy and symptom management and things like that. So a lot of times, once they're finished with their chemo radiation, I will follow up with them in two weeks just in my own clinic, and say, how are you doing? How are you recovering? And then at that time, you know, anything, pneumonitis, and I collaborate with a radiation oncologist and usually have radiation see them a month after. So I'll see them at the two-week interval. Radiation, I'll see them at the four-week interval, and then we can usually catch anything like that. What's the spectrum of symptoms that they usually present with when they do get pneumonitis? Cough is probably the number one thing, even more than shortness of breath. They have a dry, nagging cough that just won't get better no matter what they do. And then, of course, shortness of breath can be accompanied with it. And how are they managed? Steroids, like usually prednisone. It all depends. Most of the time we're going to start them with a 60 milligrams and go down 10 milligrams at a time. But we've had certainly a large number of patients who you try to taper them as quickly as you can, and it just isn't working. So some of these patients end up being on like three-month tapering doses and then you're doing like PCP prophylaxis with Bactrim, and it gets to be quite an ordeal. Let's talk a little bit about management of metastatic disease right now. Can you talk a little bit about sort of how you all think through the choice of systemic therapy in a patient, let's say who's presenting with metastatic disease has never had any systemic therapy? Well, again, we're looking at putting them on a clinical trial up front, so that's kind of the first thing. You know, we always have some kind of frontline trial that's open. So that's kind of the first thing that we look at. Now, the nice thing is our current frontline trial, the ATLAS study, you can choose your chemotherapy regimen. And that's a study. It's an Avastin-based study, but you can put patients on it who have brain metastases. It gives you a little leeway. And then they get randomized at the end of that to receive either, when they're on the maintenance of Avastin phase, they're randomized to either placebo or erlotinib in the maintenance phase. That's fascinating. Can you kind of track back over sort of maybe we can use that trial as a focus to get into this issue of sort of how bevacizumab or Avastin is utilized in this situation and then what this study is looking at? Mm -hmm. So if a patient presents with metastatic disease or 3B with pleural fusion, any of those patients, whether or not they're an Avastin candidate comes kind of in the front line because that's easy enough to just rule that out up front. So if they have brain metastases and they're not going to go on study, then they're not a candidate. If they've had hemoptysis ever, <laughs> we take hemoptysis very seriously. So if they've really ever had hemoptysis, that rules them out automatically. The only way I would say no is if they were recently bronched and they had a little bit after the bronch. But besides that, no. Squamous cell rules them out automatically. And, you know, then there's a host of other things, how bad their coronary artery disease has been in the past, whether or not they're on blood thinners, whether or not they're on Coumadin. So you either rule them out or you rule them in. And then looking at the frontline regimen, so we would use a carboplatin-based regimen, 
just for toxicity reasons. I mean, I've chatted with other nurse practitioner friends of mine in other parts of the country, and some of them will use cisplatin even in the metastatic setting. We choose not to. We'll use the carboplatin. And then similar to the adjuvant setting, looking at either using Taxol, Taxotere, or Gemzar, depending on what toxicity the patient wants to get out of it. Because I hate neuropathy, I tend to lean towards either the Gemzar or the Taxotere. I've certainly switched patients from Taxotere back to Taxol if they're just having too many asthenias, just too much fatigue, weakness after the Taxotere. I'll switch them back to Taxol. So, but then in the metastatic situation, in a non-protocol, and even in the protocol setting, you have the issue of whether or not to add in bevacizumab or Avastin on top of this chemotherapy. What do you explain to patients in terms of, first of all, the potential benefit of doing that, of adding in the bevacizumab? Well, I mean, we tell them that we always will talk about the risk of death, even in the non, the patients that are eligible, there's still a risk, a bleeding risk, you know, of I believe it's 1% to 2%. But then we explained to them that overall, even in that eligible population, they still benefited over the patient that didn't get it. And that it's a fair benefit, you know. I mean, these patients lived an average of 12.2 months on the taxol carboavastin study. So, I mean, it is a good benefit. So we do recommend it for patients who are eligible. However, we definitely have patients who, even if they are eligible candidates, refuse the Avastin based on the bleeding risk because it's a scary thing. It's very, very scary. And even if it's uncommon, just the idea of Mm -hmm. of dying because of therapy. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about, you mentioned the 1% or sort of what was seen in these prior trials. And have you had any patients who had, you know, massive hemoptysis on bevacizumab? We had one. We had a death. Wow. In an adenocarcinoma peripheral I will always remember it, and it was our first, and we've been using the bevacizumab really ever since the data came out, even before it was approved. So that's a couple years. It is a couple years. So we've had one in two years, and that was, again, a patient who had not one single risk factor. So just to track into that a little, because I, you know, when I hear about these cases, I'm always curious because I think people are still trying to put together why these bleeds do occur because they're so unusual. This patient, at what point did the bleed occur? How many treatments? I can tell you all about it because I remember it like it was yesterday. I think it was about six months ago. He had had two cycles. How old was he? He was about 60. He was a 60 year old gentleman and he made it into the hospital. So he had started to have hemoptysis, and I think it was on a weekend. He did not call me. They somehow made it to the ER, which was good. When he started out, he was having massive hemoptysis? No, he wasn't. He had maybe a few episodes, but I think it all happened in a matter of about an hour. And his wife brought him into the ER, and I think they thought he was going to be stable at first. They had bronched him and had admitted him to the unit, and then sometime that night that they brought him into the ER, he just exsanguinated. I mean, he just hemoptysized to death very quickly. And, you know, after talking to the pulmonologist, they don't feel that it was a bronch complication. It was nothing like that. I mean, he was actively bleeding from his tumor. And One of the things that there's been a lot of controversy about is whether or not these bleeds occur in association with response. Was this man responding? He was. And, yeah. you know, of course, we ran right to the computer to see, because of course they scanned him when he came in. He was responding, but from what I remember, didn't look like a typical cavitating lesion. Right, because that's the other thing that's been seen, the cavitations. Right, right. I don't recall that he looked like he had this huge cavitation, but he was definitely responding. Now, this agent has helped a lot of people, not cure, but certainly live longer and, you know, maybe quality of life. You share the risk with them up front, Mm -hmm. and this man, I guess, made an active decision to be treated. 
So it'd be a lot different, I guess, if they didn't really have good information. Let's talk a little bit about some of the other issues that people can run into receiving bevacizumab. And one is the hypertension. What have you observed with that? You know, it hasn't been a huge problem in my practice, but I certainly dealt with it probably in about 10 patients, I would say. I'm certainly not a primary care doctor, though I'm not that far out of NP school. (laughs) But I'm very much a proponent of if I cause this, I should treat it. So I'm not going to send them running back to their primary care doctor to treat this hypertension that I'm causing with this drug that I'm giving. I would say about out of the 10, probably about half of them were already on antihypertensives for some baseline hypertension. So if they are, I will usually add another agent to that. If they're not on anything, I start with a diuretic, usually either Lasix or HCTZ, probably depending on my mood for the day. But usually I'll start with something like that. There's maybe been one patient where I've had to add maybe like an ACE inhibitor or something. But once it gets to that point, I usually will then refer them out to either primary care or to cardiology to help us out with that. And and what fraction of patients does it get to be a real problem? I mean, kind of what we've been hearing in breast and colon and lung is that most of these people are fairly easy to control. Is that your experience? Yeah, I, I don't think we've ever, we've never stopped the drug based on uncontrolled hypertension. And I've never had to go past two agents to get it under control. Now, when patients ask you, how much will this adding in the Avastin, is that going to affect my quality of life, how I feel? You know, generally what's happening when I get the chemotherapy? How do you answer that? You mean for the Avastin? Right. It's one of those drugs that's not really going to affect your quality of life because you're not going to get myelosuppressed from it. You're not going to get fatigue. It's not like the chemotherapy where you're going to feel you know, waves of nausea and then you'll be fine. Unfortunately, it's the silent effects of it, which would be the hemoptysis and the hypertension that are their major risks. So it's hard to talk about it in that way because I want them to take the side effects of it very seriously, but they don't feel anything on it, especially when they're on the maintenance phase. Another issue with Avastin in general is the question of increased risk of cardiovascular events. How do you, again, go through that with patients? You know, we'll tell them about the risk. We did have a patient who had an event. He's also 78, 80 years old. So it was unclear whether, I think he had only had maybe one or two treatments. So it's unclear whether or not that was related. Otherwise, we really haven't had too much in our own practice. But just telling them up front, you know, it's part of the consent process and telling them up front what the risks are associated with it. But I mean, we don't, I wouldn't say that we harp on it too much. We talk more about the bleeding and the hypertension. And that, again, I think in the metastatic setting, in all three of the tumors where this is being used, you know, people maybe are not quite so tuned into that. But Again, in all three of those tumors, bevacizumab is being looked at in the adjuvant setting. In lung cancer, there's the ECOG 1505 trial that's about to get started that's going to use cisplatinin-based chemotherapy plus or minus bevacizumab. How do you think bevacizumab is going to play out in the adjuvant setting as opposed to metastatic disease? Well, I mean, if it follows suit like it did in 4599, it should. I mean, we would hope. I think there's going to be a lot of questions, though, about how long do you keep them on it? Do you do any kind of maintenance phase with it? If so, for how long? It's a lot different to give someone Avastin for two years, five years, than it is to give someone Tamoxifen for five years. So it's very different. So I think there's a lot of questions to be answered there. Certainly of a concern would be if they develop any problems with thoracotomy healing. I mean, that's going to be a huge issue that I'm interested to see. So Yeah, I guess that brings up the issue of wound healing and bevacizumab. And I guess in general, what people are saying is there ought to be at least six weeks separating any kind of surgery from the bevacizumab. 
Have you seen any problems with wound healing in your patients who had bevacizumab? I can't say that I really have. However, we don't push that. <laughs> we don't play around with that. We wouldn't do anything. We put in porticaths. So and I was going to ask you about porticaths. Is that a problem? No, I mean, we do them the same day as we give bevacizumab. Huh. I did have one patient that it looked like she had problems with healing, though I never... I don't know. It didn't get infected. It just wouldn't. It just was very, very, very slow to heal. But it healed without infection and without complication, and she's fine. But other than that, I mean, there's numerous people that we've put chest ports in the same day as giving bevacizumab, and I know that our colon practice does that too, without problem. Let's talk a little bit about erlotinib and sort of where that fits in. We talked a little bit in terms of EGFRs, in terms of adjuvant therapy in the enriched population. Where does erlotinib fit in for you all in terms of the algorithm for metastatic disease? Well, I mean, off study, we're, of course, using it in the second or third line. It is, you know, of course, tempting to use it front line. And when we really have the Asian non-smoking patient, male or female for that matter, I can tell you that we've used it front line. We have definitely a handful, probably five patients or more who've in front line in that subgroup of people who've benefited miraculously from it. We even have a case study that we're going to write up on dose escalation, which has been complete response. This has been phenomenal. Hold on. Let's go back to that one. That sounds interesting. (laughs) Yeah, we're really excited about this one. What happened? So we have an Asian male, non-smoker with lung cancer and no carcinoma, of course. How old? 50, maybe 52. Wow. So we started him at the Erlotinib, 150 milligrams. So he presented with metastatic disease? Metastatic, yeah. I don't remember if he has distant meds. He certainly has both lungs. So he's bilateral disease. So he's stage four by that way. What were his presenting signs or how did he get diagnosed? Cough. He had a cough because he had pretty impressive disease, pretty diffuse. They didn't call it BAC, but almost a pretty diffuse pattern in both lungs. So he had a pretty wicked cough. And so we gave him 150 milligrams up front. He developed a wonderful rash and had a near complete response, which much to our surprise only lasted for four months. What happened with his symptoms? When he stopped responding? No, when he did respond. Oh, he, I mean, much better. The breathing got much better. He was never in a wheelchair or anything like that. And he hadn't had weight loss or anything like that. He was just very short of breath and coughing. His symptoms responded very well. I mean, he, miraculous, very miraculous. Almost a complete response. So we saw that after two months. At the four-month scan, he stopped responding and had disease growth almost back to his original. It was really crazy. But he had also lost his rash. Hmm. Wow, that's interesting. Is that normally what happens? No. (laughs) So, well, I mean, we have kind of yet to see someone who had that dramatic of a response. We will normally get a lot of mileage, two, three years out of our lotnib. So that was very, very odd for us to see someone respond almost completely and then two months later just completely lose the response and have disease grow back like that. And where was the rash on his face? The rash was on his face, scalp, chest. And everything went away, the rash? The rash almost completely went away. Hmm. Um, At that point, I had not given him a lot of things for rash. I would maybe given him some topicals and things like that. So nothing that I remember thinking to myself that I did that, (laughs) you know. I don't think I made the rash go away that much. Nothing was that great. So we escalated his dose to 300, and he had a complete response at 300. And he got his rash back? And he got his rash back. Wow. His rash has been now a nightmare to manage. But he got his rash back and responded and has almost a completely clear CAT scan right now. It's unbelievable. How long has this response been going on so far? This one has been through two scans, so it would be four months. So he's six months from diagnosis, four months on this. 
So, and I guess that idea of escalating the dose is something that's not commonly done, but in this situation, based on that story, it sounds like it made sense. Yeah, I mean, I didn't think about it at all at the time, and just based on the story, how he lost his rash and and everything, we considered it. And again, you have to look at the, you know, we have an Asian male non-smoker, adenocarcinoma, you know, somebody that really fits the criteria. Now, Ann Culkin is also interviewed for this program, and you two just put together a paper looking at the issue of rash I think rash with specifically erlotinib, or was it beyond that? This one was specifically with erlotinib, though it certainly can be used for other EGFRs, for the monoclonals. But this one was specifically used for erlotinib. So let's talk a little bit about, first of all, what do you say to a patient who's about to begin erlotinib in terms of sort of what to expect? So I tell them that, you know, it's very likely that they're going to get some kind of dry skin, maybe some erythema associated with it. I tell them that sometimes the rash can be very bad. In my practice, I follow up with them at two weeks. Everyone comes back to see me in two weeks in order for a rash check. So I can usually get a handle on it rather than waiting for them to call because some patients won't call until it gets really bad, and other patients will call and it's not that bad. So I tell them that it can be anywhere from just dry skin to a really bad, diffuse, acne-looking rash, and that hopefully in the first 10 to 14 days, I will catch that in clinic and we will, there's things I can do. And that, that doesn't mean you have to stop the drug. There are things that we can do to make this better. But I don't, you know, I'm not one of those people who gives them a boatload of scripts up front and says, if this happens, use this. And if this, I'd rather be the one to manage it myself, get a look at it, grade it myself, and then treat it appropriately. When patients ask you what's causing the rash and, you know, sort of what the dynamics of it is, is this acne, et cetera, how do you explain it? Well, I tell them it's not acne. It's not bacteria. It's an inflammation due to the drug that they're receiving that we don't know a lot about why they're getting it. We think that it has something to do with the epidermal growth factor pathway and why it's more diffuse on the face and chest rather than other parts of the body we're not totally aware of. However, I tell them that it's not acne, it's not bacteria, and that scrubbing their face a million times a day is not going to make it any better. What does make it better, if anything? (laughs) Well, I mean, the first thing that I tell all patients up front before they start the drug is to start moisturizing twice a day. And let me tell you, that can be very interesting in the male population. They're not into putting on certain lotions before they go to bed at night. It's not a manly kind of thing to do. But I tell them that that definitely should help them because almost everyone is going to get some form of dry skin from it. So moisturizing up front with a cream, something a thick emollient type cream is what I tell them. Of course, avoiding sun exposure and taking the pill on an empty stomach is extremely important. Why is taking the pill on an empty stomach important in terms of rash? Because taking the pill with food will increase the bioavailability of it. It doesn't help your cancer. All that does is makes the rash much worse. So That's the number one thing you tell patients that are going on erlotinib is to take it on an empty stomach. And an empty stomach means either they shouldn't have eaten two hours before or one hour after. Do you know Ann Stiegel from the University of North Carolina? Yes. Because she told me this wild story about head and shoulders working on the rash. Any experience with that? I haven't tried that, but it makes sense. I certainly tell them to use head and shoulders for their scalp as a kind of a frontline thing. We see some scalp lesions that, of course, are really hard to get to with the hair. So we'll do some head and shoulders on the scalp, which seems to work. What are some of the other sort of remedies or local therapies that you use, and do they work? As far as remedies go, any kind of thick emollient cream, you know, when we put this together, when we put this form together that everyone kind of talked about, the dermatologists were very clear that 
lotions tend to be either alcohol-based or not thick enough. So you need to use something as a cream, not a lotion. Using something that has no scents or no dyes in it. So essentially a white cream that comes out of a jar that's thick. And I can't say that I've found one that's better than another. Different little samples from different companies that have sent me things, and I hand them out to the patients to see which they like better. The other thing I tell patients is put it in the refrigerator, especially if they're having redness or burning. Just put whatever you're putting on your face in the refrigerator. It doesn't alter the way it's going to work. Like the cream, you mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Hmm. I mean, if you're using eucerin cream, just put the jar in the fridge. It feels Hmm. cooler when it goes on. Hmm. So that's just for a comfort measure. But, I mean, once you start having the pustules and things like that, you have to move on to something more from the prescription line. Looking at topicals, clindamycin T-gel is probably what I would go to first, or even looking at the systemic things like doxycycline or minocycline. How much of this is a cosmetic issue and how much of it is actual discomfort? Well, you know, it's funny because I think a lot of the women who come in, they might have one little pustule and they can't stand it, give me something right away where I can have other men or women come into the office, and they don't even seem to really mind it. So I think it does depend on their personality, where they're at in their life, what kind of person they were before they started the Erlotinib, and whether or not that's going to bother them. A lot of the men, it doesn't bother them that much, unless it becomes painful, unless there's cracking, erythema, to the point that it feels like it's burning. Those kinds of things can be discomforting. But I think a good portion of it is cosmetic. What do you tell patients in terms of sort of the correlation between rash and response? I tell them that certainly it correlates with response. I don't think it correlates as much as other drugs have in the past because so many patients get the rash these days with it. But I certainly tell them that there can be some correlation. The only problem I have with that is that I don't necessarily want to give people false hope. And on the other flip side of that is I don't want people to think just because they don't have a rash means that they're not responding. So I don't really bring that up too often. I tell them, rash is an expected side effect. Here's how we're going to manage it. Because I don't want patients to come back and say, if they're not responding, well, I had the rash. I don't understand. So, But I'm more of a proponent of telling patients, the rash is an expected side effect. We can manage it. That doesn't mean you should stop the drug. I don't know if you have any experience with cetuximab or panitumumab in GI cancers, but can you contrast the rashes and the degree of problems with the rash there as opposed to erlotinib? I don't have a lot of experience with Vectabix, but I do have experience with Herbitux. We've had clinical trials with that. And I think that the rash seems to me to be worse with that. Now, I don't know if that's because they're getting it in an IV all at one time versus a daily dosing like the erlotinib. I treat the rash the same way, but it just seems to be more intense. It feels like the patients are having more drying, cracking, burning things going on with the cetuximab, whereas the erlotinib, it tends to be more, and it can wax and wane with these tuximab more. Anything else about the rash that maybe you covered in this paper or that's important that we haven't talked about? You know, I think an important part, and I've said this throughout our conversation, is that it doesn't mean you have to stop the drug. And that's just as much medical practitioners as it is patients seeing the rash and saying, oh, there's nothing I can do about this. I'm going to stop the drug, especially for someone that could be responding. You don't want to just dose, reduce, or stop the drug right away. So that a large point of our paper is that, you know, give these people a fighting chance, treat the rash, be on top of it. And if they're responding, let them continue. I mean, look, it's lung cancer. I mean, not if you get something that they're responding to, you're doing good. So you don't want to have to take them off based on side effects. Now, sometimes you do, and there's nothing you can do about it, but at least give them a fighting chance by trying to treat the rash. 
How often do you see the rash getting better as they continue in therapy, or does it usually get worse or stay the same? I would say that the worst it's going to be is in the first two to three months, and then usually it's going to ease off. And I would say after six months, usually the patients have just very minimal. Mostly the dry skin stays with them a lot, especially for patients who had a very bad rash in the beginning. The dry skin will tend to stay with them almost the whole time. But I find that patients also figure out how to manage it on their own a little bit too. Once they get to being on it for something like greater than four to six months, they're starting to learn when the best time is to wash their face or when the best time is to put the cream on, and it tends to not be an issue after six months. The paper also addressed the grading system. Before we met together to formulate this, there was an issue about the CTC grading system. The reason is because a good grading system is going to tell the practitioner how to manage the drug or how to treat the patient based on what grade. So for instance, if you grade a patient with a severe rash, it should say underneath, dose reduce stop or what you're going to do about it. And that was the problem that we were having with the current CTC grading criteria is that you know, it really left open to interpretation if they were severe. And then if they were severe, it was telling them to hold the drug. Whereas the CTC tend to base a lot of it on body surface area. But I've had patients who, just because they have it on greater than 50% of their body, didn't mean that it was really disfiguring or discomforting to them. Whereas I've had patients who only have it on their face, but it's extremely discomforting to them. And I would say that that's a severe rash, but it's only on their face. So we left our grading system very liberal so that the practitioner can really say it takes into account comfort. Is the patient experiencing a disruption in their ADLs or is the patient experiencing discomfort with this rash? Because if they are, then you can maybe grade that more. We just chose mild, moderate, and severe. Just make it easy. There's three criteria. So if you're going to grade it severe, then you should be starting them on a medrol dose pack and maybe holding the drug for a few days or lowering the dose. But it gave you the ease of being able to say this is only a moderate rash when in the CTC it may have talked about that as being severe. You mentioned Medrol. Does that work? The Medrol dose pack, the only thing that that's going to do is just give you a very quick decrease in the acute inflammation on their face. It's not necessarily going to clear up the pustules, but it's a comfort measure. I don't have to do that too often, but every once in a while. We were talking before about how bevacizumab might play out in the adjuvant setting in these new trials. And of course, erlotinib is being looked at in these enriched populations as adjuvant therapy. How do you think the rash might play out in the adjuvant setting? I don't necessarily know that it's going to play out that much different than the metastatic setting. Because again, in the metastatic setting, we've certainly had these patients on erlotinib for years at a time. So you rarely are, you're almost never going to do that with chemotherapy. But with erlotinib, you can just keep them on it and keep them on it. So depending on how the clinical trial is designed, if they're going to be on erlotinib for two years, I think you're going to see pretty much a similar thing as when they're on erlotinib for two years in the metastatic setting. I think you're going to see the rash peak maybe after about 10 days and maybe stay that way for about two months and then start to improve. And then maybe by six months, they won't have it at all or just some dry skin. I don't see there being a really big difference. And, of course, that same question is being asked right now, particularly with um, cetuximab and panitumumab in the adjuvant setting. It's a little bit like the alopecia thing in that there's a major cosmetic issue, people knowing, et cetera. And in a situation where they're getting adjuvant therapy, I mean, they might even be cured. So I guess I wonder, you know, how many patients are going to have a problem from that point of view of more cosmesis and sort of exposing what's going on with them. Right, especially because I don't have disease now in the adjuvant setting, so why am I doing this? You know, it's a good question, and I think it's going to depend on the face of lung cancer in the future. Again, 
breast cancer patients have no problems going on tamoxifen. Now, again, you're right, that's not going to cause them to have a rash on their face. But the numbers are a lot different for recurrence rates in breast cancer than they are for lung cancer. So, you know, a lot of our patients, they come out of surgery and they're told that it's all been gotten and they're going to do fine. But when they actually hear the survival rates or the recurrence rates, they're scared and they want to do whatever they can to make sure this doesn't come back. So I don't know that a rash is going to make that much of a difference to them, especially one that maybe hopefully we can treat pretty well.